Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Tech Renegades podcast. This is episode number 10 and I'm here as ever with my pal Oliver Snowden. Say hello Oliver. Hi guys. Ollie to his friends. <laughs> you can be my friend today though. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, how are you Ollie? Yeah good good. So we, we just had a bit of a catch up on all kinds of things that have happened lots a lot of 3d i guess um we've been talking about um and a little bit of uh, geo as well but i guess um what we haven't spoken about so far is um is some of the new tech that uh, that has come out in recent times we've got um nintendo Apple. switch nintendo switch <laughs> do Wait, tell us more that's what you meant wasn't it <laughs> uh, yeah yeah i guess so um <laughs> What can you tell us about that, Dave? Uh, it's a it's a an iPad that you can put a controller onto the side of and dock into a dock and play on your TV as well if you want to. There you go. So, so the guy that I sit next to at work, he was he was really quite excited about it, and I uh, sort of questioned why, and he he said he doesn't know why, but he seems to think it's excellent. <laughs> because Mario. Okay. Okay. Who knows? It, it does look very good for kids. This is awesome. Give it to them in the car. You know, basically, you, you never need to parent them again. You sit them in front of the TV. There you go. Play that. Right, pick mm. it up. We're going out. Play it in the car. <laughs> uh, it does It does seem really good. Uh, like, so, so this is in the context of Nintendo's previous hardware product, which is the Wii U, which was, uh, well, what the hell? What the hell is this name to begin with? And this is a giant iPad uh, that's a second screen. Which mm. you know probably had some interesting gameplay mechanics and everything, but ultimately, I think left a lot of people just confused as to what the hell it was. Mm. Interesting, interesting. Uh, and this this seems a lot more compelling in that it's clearly primarily a mobile gaming platform. It's a an Nvidia Shield, I believe, you know, which is a um, a system on a chip made by Nvidia, so they make the whole the whole stack. Really nice, good performance, good power usage and stuff be interesting to see what the battery life is like because i don't know if you've ever played a complex 3d game on your mobile phone but it doesn't last long if you do that mm. uh, this yeah. is quite a large device so it potentially has quite a large battery in it cool uh, so, yeah, we'll <laughs> cool cool um so dave what can you say we've got uh i, I haven't upgraded um my mac os to the latest version yet neither have i oliver that's that's <laughs> why we're professionals i mean we do that because we're professionals <laughs> well, because we actually have to show things on fridays <laughs> <laughs> and get work done yeah <laughs> i have seen some others that have updated and um seem to have like mixed results yeah some of their software just doesn't seem to work particularly well i think um one of the girls that we work with um, had an issue with Unity just not working great. Right. Um, so, so I anyway. always advise people to n never upgrade your work machine to an Apple software version that ends in a zero. It's never, <laughs> never a good idea. Cool. You're, you're, gam you're basically gambling. You might lose a day by doing it. Uh, <laughs> you know, at worst, you have to restore from a backup and you might lose a couple of days or whatever. Mm -hmm. or it might be absolutely fine but you just can't trust that that's the case 
and Apple, of course, updated their their MacBook Pros, which was um, which was I say about time. But um, should we say the the update uh, didn't please everyone? Yeah, and I think that's always going to be the case with Apple. Um, so it was not unexpected from me, but still disappointing that it fell short of my expectations. Um, and that's purely because I want something that is a MacBook Pro, but has incredibly good 3D performance for the, for the work that I do. Sure. Um, and that's... That, I just don't think that's actually possible at the moment with the technology that we have. Um, sure. So nothing NVIDIA or AMD or Intel makes can satisfy both the performance and power and thermal requirements necessary to make a compelling MacBook. Sure, sure. So so I guess my, my biggest gripe with it was that the, um, the amount of memory um, yeah. is... It's still 16 gigs, so I, I my MacBook, which is right next to me right now, um, is it, it's going on for four years old. That had 16 gigs of memory. Why, after four years, do I still only have 16 gigs of memory? I mean, 32 would have been good, 64 even better, but it was battery they uh, they wanted to uh, ensure was good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. So so I've. So I've read as well. So apparently the memory controller that they currently use is a nice low power one. It can go up to 16 gig. But if they want to go any higher, then they have to use one that uses more power. Because the equivalent low low power memory controller doesn't exist beyond 16 gig at the moment. So uh, some speculation I've read suggests that there might be a refresh in the new year. It's what Apple generally tend to do is release a product, um, especially if it's sort of a, a big... A fairly big overhaul to a product where it's a new model um they'll release it then a couple of months later they'll drop the price by a few hundred and possibly have a slight um spec bump as well so uh if it becomes practical for them to put in more ram i'm sure they will at that at that time mm -hmm. Do you, it sorry, doesn't just, help just... if you need to upgrade your macbook right now just to pause this, don't pause it right a second, but I was just saying, I haven't actually got any headphones on, so I do apologise. I'm not sure what implications that has. <laughs> I haven't heard any echoing or anything. You sound absolutely fine. Sweet. Wouldn't okay, you? cool. So so the, the amount of memory is not ideal. Um, the graphics card isn't ideal. And I say so, the graphics... So it's it's probably okay for, what, 90, 95% of people... Okay. Who, who are doing development at least sure but you, so i was thinking dave that google are now advocating that developers especially those on android consider machine learning first okay yes so yeah, I, I was thinking of graphics of course machine learning yeah and um and so i, I guess i had at the back of my head that you'd want to have a quite a good uh, graphics card um, but actually quite a good graphics card from NVIDIA rather than anyone else because CUDA seems to work um, incredibly well. Uh, and the alternative, so CUDA's um, what proprietary technology for NVIDIA and the equivalents for um, AMD um, and others aren't quite as good. Is, is that your interpretation? That's what I've heard, yeah. So not having any direct experience other than 
uh doing a tiny bit of bitcoin mining <laughs> that ultimately went nowhere uh yeah that's so that's so that's my understanding as well and um so just for anyone that doesn't know cuda is the uh the framework library provided by nvidia that allows you to do massively parallel stuff with your gpu yeah so stuff like recognizing features in pictures um speech recognition speech synthesis all these kind of things can be accelerated or made practical through using a hugely parallel algorithm um using using a gpu yeah and so what, what they've done what google have done for us on android and i haven't really experimented because I, I haven't had a need to but i should and i feel that it's you know it's it's due on my schedule to to commence soon um they have given us a classifier that um they reckon would take about three months to actually recreate and that classifier allows us to identify things like pyramids dogs cats whales etc etc and they are telling us that we should take that and we're able to uh, retrain that yeah but not starting from scratch so it's learned what it's learned over three months worth of iterations yeah and we can train it to to learn what say a printer looks like or a balloon or whatever else and how long does that additional um, training process take well exactly um not too long is what they're saying so um for the sake of argument an, an hour to learn um what maybe a, a printer looks like or, or some peculiar thing have that no one else has got yeah okay like some, some yeah, so industrial yeah feasible in a in a short amount of time then yeah but it would be the sort of thing that uh, it benefits from all that prior learning yeah of course yeah yeah and so um, yeah go ahead I was going to say that the, the the fact that um that the graphics card is 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 not so i i guess ideal um it, they've gone for uh something that for me goes closer towards a chromebook than a than a high-end uh professional workstation mm. that allows us to start um start working on those sorts of um, areas because at the moment for me Dave, actually it feels almost out of reach it feels like I've got this TensorFlow soft, you know, other package. TensorFlow was um, that, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So TensorFlow is like Google's um, open source offering, which you know is, is is probably you know really quite quite nice and very approachable. Um, but but the reality is is that in order probably to get anything sensible done with that, you're going to have to. Um, run that on a fairly decent machine and probably a Linux machine actually for that, for that matter. Mm. Um, and so that the, they have got images for raspberry Pis, but in terms of, um, actually, uh, classifying anything, um, you're going to need something more than a raspberry Pi. You might be able to recognize a balloon with a raspberry Pi, but training it to learn what a balloon is, um, there, there are, you know, you could run it on almost anything and, uh, you get a, a faster result than a Raspberry Pi. And so um, the MacBook, uh, it would seem that that isn't really helping us massively in that space, which is a shame because 
I feel I almost have to go and buy dedicated workstation to get into that area. And given that, let's say the fact that we're working or um, we certainly used to work uh, a lot with with mobile, and, and I still do, obviously, um, on, on this. Um, we're spending eight hundred pounds to go and get a phone, yeah, um, and that's that's quite a lot of um, money you're spending on all these gadgets that may or may not um, provide you with uh, with sufficient money to uh, to put a roof over your head, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's it, and it does become cost prohibitive at some point. I think it's, yeah. I think Apple's idea of Pro is different to your or my idea of Pro. I think their idea of pro is someone who possibly makes music or is a photographer or an artist of some kind, a developer, but probably not a developer right on the cutting edge of these kind of things. So certainly not VR, certainly not machine learning. That The MacBook Pro, their you know, top of the line high-end device that they currently offer, will not serve either of those individuals that's you and me right mm. and whilst that's understandable from apple's point of view they're kind of trying to hit if you if you imagine potential users are a bell curve they're trying to hit the like kind of middle 80 percent um i guess that's their they think that's the the way to get um more revenue i suppose and it seems to have worked as well the the macbook sold out and uh, you know had now has shipping of three to four weeks or maybe even longer um i think they released some statistics to say it's the the fastest selling macbook pro they've ever released so because they the, haven't had such a long life cycle before <laughs> could well be yeah it could well be exactly so there are several factors um but they're selling a lot of them people people want this one yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's got a touch bar. That's that's the unique selling point of this one. The extra feature that they've bunged on is a touch bar along the top, which allows you to go and associate um, icons that are context specific. Yeah, yeah, yes. And and interestingly enough, that touch bar is actually a uh, basically an Apple Watch, a long and thin Apple Watch embedded mm. in there, which is kind of interesting interesting to see how that would affect battery life sure well. sure um i did i did read a few comments dave that essentially were is this to to make up for the fact that the screen isn't touch screen yeah so this is a comparison to the microsoft surface mm. um where the entire it's a laptop a touchscreen laptop isn't it um and i've used one of those and they are horrible to use um, so you, you're reaching up to the screen and trying to touch it, um, but you do have the same problem if your iPad is in a is in a dock with a keyboard on on your desk. You have exactly the same problem in that you can't use the UI entirely from the keyboard on iOS, so you still end up reaching up to the screen and touching it. Um, mm. So that's that's not ideal by any stretch either. Um, so so the basic premise of having a touch surface that's flat on the desk, I get behind that. Um, so it's ergonomic, that's what you're saying. Well, in one aspect, it's ergonomic in that it's at the right orientation. Mm. Um, to me, it just seems like a gimmick. And yeah. what is this really providing? 
yeah it's cool to have a touch surface that you can do so the the demo they showed was the the dj application I mean, that looked cool that looked you know if you if you want to do that kind of stuff then maybe that is the best way to do it um mm. then again i don't know i i'm pretty sure pro musicians have all kind of midi controlled surfaces already that they've been doing and using for years that do that achieve those kind of things mm. um, i guess the benefit is that now you can do it in starbucks with some headphones on <laughs> in this integrated appliance this device um so i'm fairly skeptical of it i quite like having physical keys um a touch type which again is a, is a minority position so i don't look at the keyboard much and i don't want to look at the keyboard much every time i look at the keyboard i consider that to be an efficiency loss um mm. and yet now that it kind of is encouraging that uh something interesting else that i um i heard on a podcast i think it's accidental tech podcast they were talking about you know, if they want to add this to an external keyboard that that might create a, a bit of a problem in the um in a laptop the clamshell design um kind of dictates that that touch bar will be very close to the screen in terms of the amount you have to look up and down yeah. to go from one to the other and as soon as you disconnect the keyboard from the display you open that up to potentially quite a quite a wide gap um, which is why touch typing is so efficient because you don't want to be looking down at your keyboard and up at your monitor the whole time. Mm. Um, so, so it's uh, so in terms of your, your original comment on ergonomics, uh, kind of. I I really would like to use one to um, to get a feel for it. Um, I'm one of these people that can type on an iPad and is, is okay with it. But I really don't prefer it to a keyboard. The the touch, the feeling of physical keys is just uh, unparalleled in terms of speed. Mm. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I, you know, you can't currently dictate syntax of code into uh, into anything using the uh, using Siri or or voice dictation of any kind. So mm. we still need to use a keyboard for the stuff that we do. Sure, sure. Um, and I have to say, Dave, that actually. One of the most compelling things with um, with the Apple hardware when I first started using it was that top bar at the top. The fact that you could actually skip music, pause, mm -hmm. and play, and uh, have reliable volume um, compared with, let's say, uh, Linux or Windows LAN, the stuff just worked, right? And yeah, and that yeah. you can always rely on that. You can always rely on if something blares out, you hit that mute button and, it, and it's gone. Yeah exactly um, no. but now it's but now you can't rely on that anymore so if you're in photoshop and a, yeah. a web page suddenly finishes loading and blaring out an advert at full volume in the office how do you mute now yeah so i don't i don't know whether that bar has um the ability to have certain uh gesture or certain uh icons always visible i, I didn't see that far yeah yeah exactly so so just looking at my keyboard now so we've got brightness expose yeah i never never touch those buttons keyboard brightness i use that all the time um if you're coding in a dark room the keyboard is far too bright mm -hmm. uh, and then the media control volume controls and the power button there's a there's a lot of functionality what what would they consider to be essential it's uh it's a tricky one it's a very tricky one Mm. 
Interesting, interesting. It is. So it's not it's not one of those things where you look where you see it and you're like, This is this is amazing. This is a, a huge step up for me. I'm skeptical whether I even want it at all. To the point where uh, to the point where if I was going to upgrade I would consider getting the the version that still has the physical keyboard. Um mm. until you actually look at the specs of that machine and realise that it's just a MacBook Air with a different case. And a slight spec bump, mm -hmm. um, which again sort of um, demonstrates what Apple thinks is the pro market. So, the 13-inch Pro without the Touch Bar is for professional people that don't actually want their machine to have any power at all. So, may these are maybe um, bloggers, journalists, people who f who generally mm -hmm. don't ask a lot of their machine all that much. Mm. maybe managerial types that aren't on an ipad yeah, yeah. of course that's a valid um definition of professional you know these are people that get real work done with their computer um it just seems different to what apple have offered up to now um, mm. you went you went to apple if you wanted the best and once you get used to having that not having an option to have that um when you need it when you need an upgrade is really um really difficult to deal with um because if you look at the alternative um laptops available they're all basket cases yeah yeah so some are, are kind of have the have the stylistic looks of of a macbook um but fundamentally you're not going to get the same experience because a different manufacturer makes the hardware to makes the operating system. Um, yeah. Or in the case, yeah, of the Linux, operating systems whatever. probably aren't aren't as uh, friendly to a developer um, as Mac OS is. Yeah, not uh, friendly. So far as mean... you know, we can plug it into a pro projection uh, screen yeah, and it will just yeah, work. Yeah. I mean, do that with your Linux laptop or what? I mean. Not well, you just have to do that. I was just saying, you just have to recompile your kernel a few times. <laughs> I um, I probably wouldn't be able to hear you because the fan would be going at full pelt because it yeah. can't control the speed of the fan. Um, so, so <laughs> the all point these is there is not to not to bash Linux at all because it's it's incredible and we've both used it in the past. Um, but when you're actually wanting to be productive and just get on with your, come into work and trust that your machine will just enable you to get on with your job, mm. you wouldn't choose Linux for that, unless you had to. Yeah, I mean, for Docker and things like that, wonderful. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the, there isn't there isn't an option that's, um, I mean, Ubuntu and things like that, that, is, that just isn't an option that's really good enough at the moment and I, I don't see a reason why it would be good enough because there is little financial incentive to, to do that um, but anyway unless, unless you want to start to make hardware and become the next Apple and it, yeah. seems, it seems to me like there is a gap now there is a gap right at that high end for an incredibly well engineered piece of hardware that's incredibly well integrated with its whole ecosystem of software um, but Dave, I, I would guess that would be a Chromebook <laughs> with WebAssembly and all the rest of it, um, and and maybe that's five years away. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? 
who knows cool um, yeah it's, it's it's interesting to see the direction apple are taking and i i read an interesting article today that was saying oh, and what about the mac pro you know what about the mac mini we haven't seen anything about these they, they haven't even been mentioned and this is kind of this is kind of an issue right you rely on apple hardware for your company and they go 18 months without a peep not even a don't worry we're working on it um and in the case of for example external monitors it looks like they just aren't working on those anymore <laughs> So bad luck if you wanted an Apple monitor or were relying on an Apple monitor becoming available for your business. Maybe you're a film studio and you, or a film editor, film editor, and you need a, an Apple mm. monitor to be able to edit 4K footage at native resolution. Um, mm. Bad luck. You can't do that with a Mac Pro. Um, mm. Or you can't do that with a display made by Apple unless it's integrated into an, an iMac. So this article was suggesting that possibly the reason for that is that the Mac Pro and Mac Mini are going away to be replaced by the iMac and the iMac Pro, possibly, which is mm -hmm. you know, obviously currently not available or not, you know, just theoretical at this stage. Uh, but it mm -hmm. would kind of make sense in that they would have one portable and one desktop, simplify the product lines. Yeah. Um, and that larger form factor would possibly enable you to put a, a big hulking graphics card in there. And the fact that you're always mains powered would mean that you could have your memory controller that goes all the way up to 64 gig. Sure, sure. So that would um, potentially I, be good. But then when it comes to doing a presentation where you need to take your MacBook along, then you're out of luck. Sure, sure. Yeah, so, I just feel actually I, I need a, um, a MacBook, which uh, is uh, three times the thickness of, of the current one. and. <laughs> And that would do quite nicely. <laughs> so I, I did um, I did have a look at a gaming laptop. I, I, I did order it and cancelled it and so on and so on. But that's, that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is the weight that it was going to be was eight kilos, which is pretty much three times the weight <laughs> of a, a MacBook Pro, which is quite considerable. Yeah. And we, we did see that external graphics card, didn't we? That was it a Kickstarter project. Yeah. 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 So external. So, so this is, this is news to me having had one of these machines for several years, um, and having this Thunderbolt port on it. Well, well, yeah, what's that? I just plug that in into my monitor and it works all right. Um, but what that actually is, is a dr essentially direct tap into your PCI express lanes. Oh, great. Mm. Okay, cool. So you can actually plug a graphics card into that. Wow. Okay. So, um, yes, there's, there is one manufacturer that I can, f that I know of that all these, um, external GPU housing seem to base their build on. Um, and I forget the name at the moment. I'll put it in the show notes that, um, mm. it essentially enables you to plug a PCI card into this docking station and then a, Thunderbolt cable into your Thunderbolt port and essentially have whatever peripheral you could plug into a PCI slot, um, mm. including a graphics card, um, which, you know, potentially sounds like a, at best, a stopgap solution, right? This is never going to be something that you're going to use on an ongoing basis unless you really have to. Um, but potentially, you know, combined with a, a mobile power supply, that could that could maybe fit in your laptop case and be carted around. So my use case for this is a mobile development demonstration machine. 
um i really don't want to take a huge pc tower around and oh, a huge amount of cables and everything um, yeah just want to be able to turn up at a, an event or a trade show or wherever i need to demo set up my macbook and plug in a vr headset and re be ready to go um, yeah, yeah that used to be possible um until until oculus discontinued support of the max because of the performance not being good enough um and it could potentially be possible again if i use an external gpu in this way so i've got a docking station on order and um once it arrives and i've tinkered with it we'll see if it's uh, feasible in any way interesting so the one that i was looking at was the wolf yeah yeah, so it's kind of interesting because you go to their Kickstarter and it says the um, the funding has been cancelled. You see that? I saw that. They, I thought that they got a, an awful lot of funding. They did, yeah. It was massively successful. And it looks like you can you can pre-order it or register your interest on their site still. Yeah. So yeah. kind of, I don't really know what the um, situation is there regarding that one. But ultimately, it's just a, a modified version of this external PCI cradle um, yeah. i think the issue is it's not really meant for these massive graphics cards so you have to butcher it a bit to make it fit and it just comes in a nice package you know it's brushed metal so it matches what your what your macbook already looks like mm. aesthetically pleasing and, and all that integrated so, power so, supply and, and so on and so on so that, that appeals slightly to me um only so far as uh, i would get the portability of my my machine and i could probably leave that at work yeah um yeah. because uh, when i when i'm at work i can plug it in and i can do some machine learning or whatever i want to do or i'll certainly simulate some stuff and then when i finish at the end of the day i can uh walk away with my laptop and if obviously i had a really big job then i i would probably put it on amazon or something like that but yeah but sure. so prototyping you know it, it's probably quite nice to have it all local yeah, definitely, and that's that works really nice. Then it essentially becomes sort of a uh, a super supercomputing docking station, which is yeah. really great, really really great. Um, and that and sounds like, like a great product that Apple could make. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. As in you, a, a docking station that uh, trebles the performance of your machine, <laughs> which makes complete sense because you're at your desk. You know, you've got AC power. You don't care about battery life. You're plugged into the mains. Okay. Yeah, it would be. It would be. Um, I just don't think the focus is there. I think that's yeah. demonstrated by the machines they've released. Yeah, yeah. It'd be really interesting to see if if uh, this iMac Pro rumor, suggestion, theory has any weight behind it. Um, mm. Because it, it used to be the case that you could get a Mac Pro, you could max it out entirely, you could swap out the graphics card for you know a certain certain subset of graphics cards that had really first first party support on uh, on a mac os and um now that's just not the case at all mm. the, the mac pro hasn't been updated in gone three years is it something like that something crazy you can't mm. swap out the gpus for anything anywhere near current generation um so if you want that you know really beefy high-powered workstation in a mac well sorry you can't um, <laughs> so yeah kind of kind of strange kind of interesting cool yeah so that's apple wow and dongles are so, on sale dongles are on sale 
if you have <laughs> get down your apple store while stocks last oh dear <laughs> <laughs> USB-C is the future Ollie do you know, I think I bought a Thunderbelt bolt cable the other day from them, and that was about $50 for just a single cable. So yeah. I thought, yeah, I've been ripped off. I think it was only half a meter as well. Yeah, but... yeah, that's it. You, you know when they, when they sell a half a meter and a meter cable? <laughs> <laughs> just bend over and whip yeah. that half a meter. Enjoy. So I, I haven't shown you this yet, Dave, but I've uh, I got the Pixel when it came out. Ooh. So, um, so that's that's Google's um, latest offering, um, which will be or has replaced the Nexus line of phones. So that's a mon- that's a monitor with one pixel, right? <laughs> Morse code is the future. It's uh, it's so the are you, are you happy uh, with the developer's f- friend, um, which uh, is uh, is apparently Apple grade quality. It would. They would marketing would lead you to believe, but yeah. um, yeah, what can I say uh, about it? The um, the camera that they, they claim that the camera is the best camera that has ever existed in a smartphone, it, it is outstanding, Dave. We used to joke that, um, that with Android, when you took a, a photo, whatever you were taking a photo of had been and gone, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I was saying to Son, you know. Those photos when people are on the beach or something and they're they're jumping, doing a star jump or something, um, on Android that never really worked. You, people had to keep on jumping and you just hoped that one of the photos would actually get you in midair. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Or you get very good at kind of predicting. Okay, they're about yeah. to jump. We're going to start taking the photo now as they jump. Oh yeah, it's kind of sort of the right place. So so that has all gone. Um, you can take photos and. Uh, you, Similar speed to the uh, to, to the iPhone, um, you, you press the button and it happens immediately. So, so that's incredible. I, I suspect that um, that the the hardware that they've put in there is just outstanding, and so that solves a lot of the problems. Um, slightly related is that uh, I did have a Nexus 5X, the worst Nexus I've ever owned. But anyway, um, that would almost garbage collect for you know what felt like two minutes or something but it was probably realistically five seconds or something Uh, the whole phone would just lock up it was just ridiculous um interestingly i've still noticed that with this pixel um Mm. it's not five seconds or anything like that but it is um it is still doing that thing that it's doing which is um i say garbage collecting sweeping whatever it is doing behind the scenes i would guess um so occasionally you can get a bit of jank with it. I think they're mucking about with Chrome. We've got some suspicions with other folk that I'm working with at the moment that, but the Chrome internals seem to be, you know, under being tinkered with. Dare I say? Okay. Yep. Well, you, you may have also heard this this WebAssembly um, effort, mm. and this uh, all the major browser manufacturers are sent essentially enabling uh, C, C++ code initially to um, to execute um, in Chrome, Firefox, um, Microsoft's Edge, uh, Safari, which all sounds really exciting, but isn't yeah, something you necessarily take advantage of now. But I believe, um, well, it, with certainly with Chrome and Firefox, you can uh, enable it with, with flags. And so 
I guess it's amazing that the browsers are all still working. <laughs> so, so as I understand that, is the sort of um, the CPU equivalent of WebGL, would you say? So WebGL gives you direct access to the graphics stuff that you can do on mm. the card, and WebAssembly in it essentially gives you the same low-level access to CPU through your browser. Would that be a fair layman's yeah. high-level understanding? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it... It came originally, I, I, so I don't know the full history of, of WebAssembly, per se, but Google have been working in this space for a long time, and yeah, they, they had, had the salt and pepper compiler thing. Sure, yeah. And I think the issue with that was that the um, the code that was actually produced at the end was still platform-specific, or certainly CPU-specific, yeah? Okay, so is WebAssembly not going to be? Yeah, my understanding of that. Uh, so um, it's like um, like an intermediate representation, like uh, LLVM does. Yeah, that's that's my understanding of it. Uh, okay, okay. Which was always Google's goal. Sure. Um, but, so then you know, each it's... browser vendor is responsible for writing whatever native implementation of that on whatever yeah. hardware platforms they need to support. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. Okay. I'm just just reading Wikipedia here. It just says WebAssembly or Wasm is an experimental, efficient, low-level programming language for in-browser client-side scripting currently in development. Its initial aim is to support compilation from C, C++. So yeah, cool. Should be should be very interesting to it see. It definitely is. It definitely is because that then essentially would make the Web a level playing field. You don't have to. You don't have to target JavaScript as your end result. You target well, yeah. instead. So, so my thoughts that are going around in the back of my head. So, um, so, so Rust um, is Mozilla's, you know, project to go and make uh, programs that uh, are essentially impossible to break because they've been proven to be correct. They've got uh, there's a Rust operating system. Um, I forget. Do you know what the name of that is, Dave? Uh, I don't know. I probably Rust. have read about it, but yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Yeah, I'm trying to think. It's going to be okay. Re Redox. Redox. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where they they're going to try and use some like formal methods to prove that the kernel is is correct so it's a microkernel a rust microkernel cool um and that that it'll be interesting to see how much momentum um that gets at the moment it looks like uh, linux from you know early 2000s late late 90s yeah sure um, sure but um so bringing this back it would be fascinating, wouldn't it, if uh, you could essentially boot off a web page. Uh, it feels like it could almost be similar to Chromebooks today. So Chromebooks today run uh, Linux, um, but a stripped-down version that's all safe and secure. And maybe something like this is something that could work in the future where the operating system is essentially a web browser which can run all of our native code um, using WebAssembly. 
Yeah, this is really interesting, isn't it? So if you think this kind of marries with the work Mozilla are doing on Servo as well, which mm. is the Rust, Rust re-implementation of the web browser, um, which it seems that quite a bit of technology is percolating across to uh, into Firefox. And um, so a stripped down OS is all you need to run that. I say all mm. you need, massively trivializing something of which I'm massively ignorant about. Um, but certainly you don't need as much in your OS as, say, Mac OS or Linux or Windows. You just need enough to be the equivalent of what the Chromebook can do. Run that browser. Sure. So if, if, I, go ahead. If your OS is written in Rust, if your browser is written in Rust, then you are essentially insulated from whatever can be done in WebAssembly. Um, your browser mm. won't ever crash. If it's been formally mm. verified, it won't ever crash. So you have I that isolation against things that could potentially misbehave. Mm. Um, which is kind of kind of crazy to get your head around. How how could it possibly give you that low level access unless you can just arbitrarily read and write to memory? Um, it's really something that I'm not clear about. You know, when you think C and C plus plus, you just think I'm just going to stamp all over memory like I don't care. Um, and that's you know all the all that lack of any kind of checks and verifications is what provides it with so much speed and you know the, the fact that it's not running on a vm it's not doing garbage collection it's not doing anything mm. um so i i, I don't know the details they haven't looked into it but i would would imagine it's almost like a, a virtual machine where the the c c plus plus code is operating in an environment which is sandboxed away from from everything else um, yeah yeah it must be so kind of in a similar way to how llvm works yeah so you've got that you know, the the clues in the name isn't it low level virtual machine llvm yeah 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 interesting that'd be an interesting area for the study definitely so that would mean that video games that are written uh, with C C um could be delivered via web browser and things like Photoshop and, and all those sorts of legacy apps. Um, I, I, I accept that the UI bindings and all of that um, would, ha would have to probably be modified, but, but does that ultimately mean that you could either um, convert those, uh, those, those um, UI libraries to this WebAssembly thing or choose to use a web page um, the, the, the choice is yours but once you can do that you'll get cross-platform c++ code yeah which is really interesting and i think this is a case of the um technology changing in line with adoption because at the moment we've got javascript everywhere which is mm. great in one case in that it's everywhere but bad in another in that it's javascript mm. um, say what you will about the merits of the language it's um, it's uh, certainly not up there with C, C++, Rust in terms of delivering performance. Sure, sure. So that is compelling enough reason to, to do it. And, yeah. yeah. Um, potentially a huge win. Yeah, potentially a huge win. And I think yeah. also for, for something like, you know, applications that currently run in Electron, 
if they wanted to see performance increases, battery life improvements, then um, using you know switching to a, a lower level implementation might well get you most of the way there. That would be very interesting. And presumably, you can use a reuse all your front end code because so you, you're still in a browser environment. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. So I actually think it's going to put pressure on web standards because mm, yeah. so we've got web components. This is this is something that's that's evolving at the moment. I'm actually learning a little bit about uh, Angular two. Are you you familiar with that, Dave? At all? Only in passing. Okay, so so Angular is Google's um, efforts at uh, creating uh, a, a, I suppose a, a web tool, I would say tool chain, but it's a it's an ecosystem where you want to make a web app of some description and that allows you to go and create components, modules, if you will, in a sane way and they take care of all the build and your development refresh cycle and all the rest of it, which is great actually. You know, It's, it's similar to having an IDE but better than an IDE because you just tap in any code you like, code editor you like um, and it, it just works. There's a there's a CLI for for the framework as well, so you can just um, you use ng new create your new project, and then you can go and generate components and directives and all this sort of stuff. So um, sounds nice. Sounds really productive. Yeah, and and the sort of direction that's going in with these web components um, is that you can go and create your own specific widgets that does exactly what you you want. Um, and at the moment, we're obviously writing those components with uh, with JavaScript, or in the case of uh, Angular 2, we're using TypeScript to go and express ourselves. Um, and, and TypeScript actually sounds uh, well. I say it sounds. I've used it a reasonable amount, but um, it feels like a good compromise between uh, Java uh, from from you know years gone past. Um, moving into a world where um, where a lot of things will be sort of JavaScript and you want to uh, to have things expressed in a in quite a clear way I mean there's, there's you can use back ticks and things like this Dave so to to have what in some uh, languages environments these, these here docs you're familiar with that Dave where you just you're saying between these characters here and those other characters there tap whatever you like in there and it's going to ignore um, or anything that could be like a special character. Can you with me on that? Yep. And and this is all part of actually um, JavaScript itself, actually. So I shouldn't say it's um, specific to, to TypeScript. TypeScript is just giving the actual types. But um, when, you're, when you're programming in this, you're actually uh, programming in essentially quite a modern version of JavaScript that the browsers aren't necessarily supporting at the moment. And uh, the compiler goes and converts it to all those legacy um, JavaScript versions. Mm. So yeah, so TypeScript is a, a typed version of of uh, JavaScript or EC, EMCA, ECMA, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah, um, yeah. But ultimately, the moment has to compile back down to JavaScript, um, and that is going to be a ver you know essentially a verifiably safer subset of JavaScript than you would be able to write if you were writing pure, pure JavaScript. Is that yeah. assessment? It's true. So, but there's a slight thing with the web components is that I believe that um, 
you you can essentially use anything you like that the goal will be you can use anything you like to go and create a web component which is like a widget call it a button say yeah and i guess that if you decide to go and write your button one day in c or c plus plus um using web assembly yeah okay yeah with you then then exactly you've got your beautiful button widget thing um and you can what just go to your use that. HTML button. So yeah, so what happens to your HTML web button? So I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, yeah. But I think what I'm saying there is that um, this would essentially allow anyone to write anything they like and um, and replace everything that we had before with something different. And so for me, that that makes me think that in terms of standards is that going to put a huge amount of pressure on standards because the standard has essentially evolved into, well, you can have any web components you like. Um, and so we end up with, uh, with essentially a load of, uh, uh, load of components that may be difficult for people to read because they aren't familiar with a set of components, but maybe the reality is that, Google will go and release a load of components, material design components, and most people will be familiar with that. And so uh, it, practically it's not such a problem. Maybe fragmentation wouldn't be such a problem because of the amount of effort a company would have to put into go and create those widgets. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, it's, it's kind of analogous to the current situation with ui toolkits if you're doing something in say pure c plus plus and so you need to write a linux desktop app i mean where do you even begin mm. um there's so off the top of my head there's um qt sort of thing yeah gtk yeah plus i guess <laughs> um and maybe some other stuff i don't know yeah but what would you choose and why what are the merits um mm. and uh so essentially you go back to sort of a, a free market e economy in terms of libraries and widgets admittedly if you've got someone big like google pushing something then that's far more likely to get the traction mm. um that you would want to see uh, but you might end up with five different implementations of a button um, mm. and no real way to choose between any of them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so that'll be interesting to see. I, yeah. I feel actually Dave that, um, that this sort of innovation, if you want to call it that, um, is coming at the right sort of time because, um, you will have possibly seen some of Google's AI efforts, or AI, but should we say machine learning efforts in recent times. Yeah. They've got um, text-to-speech working incredibly well. Um, it's almost indistinguishable between um, native Chinese speakers, so it's able to, to read uh, sentences to uh, a Chinese person, as, and the Chinese person would... would would not really recognize whether it was a machine um, speaking or a human. Yeah, it's amazing. And English is not quite at that level, but it's, I think it's double as good as the previous um, generation. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we're still like something like going from ninety four percent to ninety six percent or something like that. Yeah, yeah. We? Or, or ninety seven. Um, to me, it sounds incredibly good. There's a there's a page, isn't there, with samples from from different yes different yeah, yeah. Uh, versions and yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Th- these are the guys in Cambridge, aren't they? They are, yeah, yeah. Nice together. Um, this is amazing. This is this is this is a a step change in existing technology but it gets you out of the uncanny valley and into something that is indistinguishable from human speech it's incredible um even the english version i thought was really really impressive still um, yeah, yeah. And, and i want this to work so maybe i'm biased in in that direction of it being really good um but i i couldn't tell that it was um synthesized Sure, sure. So, so I think my my point on that, Dave, actually, is that we were talking about web components, which is um, very much um, you're looking at something and you're interacting with the thing that you're looking at, etc. Yeah. Um, which is most apps these days, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Google um, and and others, Microsoft, etc., are um, pushing ahead with uh, essentially uh, agents so so 10 years ago when we were at university etc cetera, etc cetera, um, agents and the semantic web were incredibly popular yeah it was certainly something to, to talk about yeah, and so the um, idea was you'd have you'd have this uh, this agent go off you, you say okay I, you know I need to f- I need to find a flight for this afternoon go off and find me the best or, mm. um, I need a camera, but I don't really know anything about cameras. Go and research it. Find me, find me what you think is the best price-performance ratio camera within this price range, and then come back to me. Yeah, yeah. And and so uh, Google are going ahead and doing that. And so that's that's one of the the main selling points of this Pixel. Yeah, um, the, the 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 voice recognition on it is is outstanding. It's it's very good. Uh, I wouldn't say it's flawless. But it is still uh, very good. Um, it's a little bit creepy, actually. I, I've actually turned it off so that the hot word, um, OK Google, um, I, I've actually switched that off. I, I can't actually stand saying that, Dave. The, the, mm. the day that we're all sat around a table saying OK Google, um, it, I feel is, a, is an incredibly uh, sad day. And I think Google should be careful with that because that sounds closer to how Microsoft would play this. Mm. Whereas yeah, it's Apple, very distasteful, isn't it? It is. It is. You know, uh, I, I, obviously Apple have got Siri, but uh, I think Apple person, uh, would be. It? So it's more like, yeah. hey Siri. You know, but I, I don't I necessarily just feel like I want to call mine Jeffrey. <laughs> yeah, Jeffrey, would you look up this for me? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's that's much more humanizing, and also. Yeah. Yeah, if they if they want to change Google company name, they're a bit screwed, aren't they? <laughs> well, the, the annoying yeah, thing is that someone just turns around and says, "Okay, Google," and about ten phones will respond. Yeah, yeah and anyone that's listening to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that exactly it. Um, so, um, although having a universally accessible way of initiating the speech recognition is kind of what we need at the moment. Um, you know, it's just it's a bit Star Trek, isn't it? It's like computer, yeah. show it on the main screen. Yeah, yeah. Like, why is it, why so, is it called Alice or Bob? Mm-hmm. 
But there is a compromise. So um, the middle button, um, you can just hold that down and the agent will um, will respond. At the moment it says, hi, can I help you? I've turned the volume down just for the podcast. Yeah. Um, so in terms of interfaces and web components, I think what I was going to say is that um, if machine learning uh, is, is pretty good and continues to get pretty good, um, and if voice recognition and text-to-speech is uh, is uh, yeah as good as Google are demonstrating at the moment and available on these mobile phones, is the need for a dedicated app diminished? Um, Absolutely. In many cases. Absolutely. Um, it just becomes a conversation, then, doesn't it? Yeah, and and, uh, and from Google's perspective, um, that would be uh, a good thing for um, for the world. So far as we're not paying designers, artists, programmers to make uh, things that are fundamentally pointless. So um, if you don't need an interface to go and control your program, I mean, we work as we, we've worked in geography, say. So uh, a buffer is where you uh, you select a, a point. And you draw a circle around it, say for a, for a mile or something. Um, if the agent uh, is designed to provide you with a tool to say buffer around where I am now, you can, uh, as a developer, spend your entire efforts almost working on that problem and presenting the final uh, outcome of that, uh, rather than actually spend all the time on this interface, which is just trying to allow you to go and specify the options. Yeah, it almost goes back to like a command line um, operation where instead of tapping uh, words, uh, you're able to talk to the agent and the agent is able to infer enough to go and uh, produce the result. You you with me on that, Dave? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And then... There are a certain subset of people, me included, who actually prefer the command line because of that nature of uh, your... It feels much more like you are um, well, the, the commanding the computer to do to do what you the, what you want it to do yeah. rather than hunting around for a menu or trying to figure out if this icon represents what you're trying to do based on the context you're currently in. So, no, just take the, take the video recompress it to this resolution at this bit rate and then call the and output this boom done mm. yeah there's a lot to be said for that and you know if you if you could literally do it in a way that i just described um using commands uh with your voice then that's hugely compelling it's hugely compelling um yeah, the problem yeah. with the command line is make a small error and it doesn't work at all it's, and it's not discoverable at all and and really that is kind of a problem with um voice control as well is uh discoverability is an issue um, yeah yeah and a lot of that you know is trial and error um um but yes yeah, so and, and it kind of goes away as as more and more things are possible then discoverability is kind of a non-issue because it will just be able to do whatever yeah, and I think at the moment with Google, though, they're, they're having more of a conversation. So if if you need more parameters than you've given, which is the case of when you're setting a 
calendar event at the moment with the pixel. Sure. It just asks you. It just says, "Okay, when when do you want to set this event? Yeah. Is this good enough? Are you happy with this? Yeah. And you have to accept it. And so, so it's, um, a, it's a dialogue that goes back and forth a few times. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And after a while, you learn what to say to get it done quicker. And I think that's similar to what, like how a human would operate when they're talking with with other people. You know. Yeah. Definitely, you become more efficient in your communication. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, so, so that that is a real good option. I mean, that's a, that's a great sort of capability that this phone has got. Really like that, um, and I, I'd recommend anyone that uh, you know is considering an Android phone to to check this out, um, just so you can see what people are going to be having over the next sort of few years. Um, and this phone sh- supports the Daydream VR stuff as well, doesn't it? Hmm. Mm. Does I think that's going to be fairly cheap as well, Dave? Isn't it? Yeah, I haven't seen prices, but presumably. Yeah, um, I mentioned also um, just briefly getting back to the camera. So um, the stabilization, Dave, is outstanding. Mm. Uh, really, it's very good. Optical image stabilization. Are we talking a physical implementation? <laughs> I thought it was actually software. Oh wow! Okay. So, um, so I, I, yeah, we can go and check check the details later, maybe. But um, I, I recorded um, an entire presentation today for uh, an hour, hour and a half. My, I, I was um, resting my elbow on the table and holding the camera up, but uh, it, whilst my my arm was draining. It's blood. <laughs> the the, the stabilisation was excellent. So I, I could move my hand to the left and to the right. And the uh, the image I saw on the screen was stable the entire time. But as I moved the camera, it would pan um, in, a, in a sort of continuous motion to the new location. And if you moved it excessively, as if I... Uh, you know, were to go and focus on a speaker at the other end of the room, which happened with Q and A, um, it just gives up, and then it goes back into the sort of original mode. But when you're just focused on something, um, it keeps it stable, and and that is just so incredible, Dave. You know, it's the difference between enjoying watching a video and just being fed up. <laughs> so, yeah, thoroughly impressed that. That's that's really interesting. I've I've also found a an article that kind of explains it a, a bit more. Um, it's not optical image stabilization. It's purely um, purely electronic, so algorithmic. Um, yeah. And Isaac Reynolds, Google Google's camera product lead, gave a lengthy answer into why it doesn't have optical. Um, this is from petapixel.com. Um, EIS <laughs> and OIS. So that's electronic and optical, and very different goals. So you can't compare them to ask which is better or worse. OIS primarily involves uh, improves low light photography by physically compensating for handshake within a single frame, and EIS improves shaky video by maintaining consistent framing between multiple video frames. OIS mm. is primarily for photo, and EIS is only for video. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's really interesting because. Um, Apple's Apple's thing is this is 
this is a this is a camera this is a great camera that you have with you all the time and and they primarily show off photos and certainly recently they have been showing off photos the photographic capabilities rather than the video capabilities mm. um so that's that is interesting um it still does help with video so it's a bit uh, sort of disingenuous to say OIS is primarily for photo and EIS is only for video because OIS certainly helps massively with video as well. Mm. You basically got a tiny little miniature Steadicam in your hand um, yeah. and it does help. Um, you don't get the same kind of effect of the panning that you were describing. Yeah. You can still make it shake if you, if you do it really badly. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I'd, I'd love to have a go on that and see and see the differences. Sure, sure. So, um, really impressed with that. Um, there have been also quite a few photos on Twitter. I'm not sure if you saw um, the the New York photo um, at night with all the rain. No, so I, I haven't. No. So, I claim to be an Apple user testing out a, a Pixel phone. Took the photo just by chance, and uh, and you know it was highly rated by. By loads of people, it, it looks very impressive, Dave. And to say that it came from a camera phone, yeah, um, well, it, it's quite incredible. Um, put a link to that in, the, in our show notes as well. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and of course, alongside that, you know, people are joking that um, the videos that you can um, produce from this, you know, is is not far off. You know, what you might have in say the eighties to go and record a movie. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so. Um, so yeah uh, presumably it does 4k yeah so i was going to say um this to you dave that um it's interesting what google are doing in terms of the data storage so photos.google.com mm. allows folks apple and uh, android to upload their images for free um and store essentially forever yeah and it's unlimited yeah, unlimited. Cool. But there's some caveats on that, yeah? One is that if you uh, use whatever phone you've got that is non-Google, mm. then they are allowed to compress it, yeah? So okay. so it's not necessarily the original files, right. yeah? yeah? But what like they're saying to is... Something the... like, store it, uh, like Dropbox, where it is the original file. It might show you a compressed version in the mobile client, which it indeed does. Yeah, but synchronized to your Mac or your Windows PC or whatever, you is have the original. original file. Yeah, yeah, um, which is not a problem. If you want to store the original file with Google, um, you can do that, but it will just eat into your Google Drive space. Yeah, Got you. right. Okay. But what they're doing with the Pixel is that they're saying, well, if you want to record your 4K videos, then that's fine, mm -hmm. and they will store it on Google Photos for free forever at 4k yeah interesting so which makes me think that um although people complain about the price of the actual hardware um maybe they're actually just pricing in the fact that you are going to record this number of videos this number of photos they're all going to be native resolution um and that that's rolled into the price and they're hoping that in the future that data costs will will reduce to the point where that's almost irrelevant in a few years time yeah sure 
because that is an issue, right? 4K video is huge. Dave, so the videos I recorded today, we've got a pretty fast connection at work. Um, they probably had some peculiar filtering on. Um, so we won't go into all those details, but they took a long time to upload. I'd say most of the afternoon with my phone plugged into the wall, <laughs> it was um, uploading these videos, yeah? <laughs> and I was just thinking, I, I, I'm not sure this is sustainable because if, if I had those, if I took those videos at home, I've got actually quite a poor internet connection here. Or if I had to use my cellular connection, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to use my allowance, um, which is largely unlimited, but I think it does get capped after a certain period of time. I'm, so, I'm probably throttled. Um, that'd just be really annoying if I did one video and essentially I've used my month's allowance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I certainly feel that pain as well. So I've got an iPhone 6S, does 4K video, and... Um, I have to use the phone in weird ways to make this feasible. So, so it's a 64 gig phone. So it's got 64 yeah. gig hard drive, um, and it's so it's full at the moment. Right? I've been on holiday recently, so I took a lot of video, um, but it was it was pretty much empty before I went. So I've I've taken 64 gig, or slightly less, maybe let's say 50 gig of video primarily. Photos are a tiny bit. Um, and I've been uploading every every second, every waking moment I possibly can and remember to on my um my wonderful ADSL connection at home, which is just terrible. Um so I've got fiber in the office and um that's certainly helped. But I've got I've got a backlog of two hundred and five videos left. I'm just looking at my Dropbox app now on mm. my device. Um so I have to turn the screen lock off, plug it into the mains turn the brightness all the way down so I don't just fry the screen and um, just keep it going all day like that. This this is crazy. This, um, yeah, this is an infrastructure problem, both in terms of local storage size and uh, bandwidth to upload our 4K videos to wherever they're going to go. In, this, in my case, it's Dropbox. In your yeah. case, Google Photos. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, imagine when there are there are a hundred people doing all that at work. It's, it's yeah. going to saturate the upload very very quick. Yeah, yeah, um, and I, I, I suppose I'm not actually too concerned uh, about here in the UK um, about that. I mean, uh, I'm sure with this uh, Brexit business, it could go either way. But if it went for the worst, well, you know, it's a fairly uh, small country in terms of. Um, you know, physical geography, um, I'm sure, you know, bandwidth will will be able to in, be increased um, in years to come relatively easily. But in other places like, say, Australia, you know, that's, that's like the size of Europe with a mm. population, you know, a third the size of the UK. Will they, I say, you, you wouldn't say forever, but at what point will they have the sort of... Um, infrastructure necessary to do all of this yeah i mean if i'm out in the bush somewhere taking some some videos from a beach or whatever I, i'm doing yeah um i'm lucky to get you know 3g <laughs> yeah um it's interesting and, and bandwidth it, is expensive yeah it almost becomes uh like a like a digital third world a place like that 
yeah it has yeah. a potential to right if we if we develop some enabling technology that uses a huge amount of bandwidth let's say it's some kind of telepresence vr system or ar where you need 10 megabit upload to sustain a presence in there um yeah certain certain people are going to be cut off from that and it's not necessarily going to be demographic yeah um, yeah yeah in terms of you know developed or not developed western or wherever it's it's going to be largely a factor of your geography as you quite rightly point out um and that that's that has sort of national and local implications i happen to live in a street where they've not laid fiber and they're not going to lay fiber barring some government grant or something um mm. so i need to move or wait and yeah how long how long am i going to be waiting but i it feels like i'm in a, a digital desert when i go home because i'm sure i'm experiencing things through a vastly um impoverished service yeah 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 so yeah so uh, all in all dave it's um it is uh it's quite an expensive uh, device the screen is is great uh, can't complain with that um if you if you have a case um they're hard to come by but you you can get them um those fit reasonably well uh it's just like a uh say almost the one that i've got is a fairly sort of strong plastic i'd say but the the more uh what's the, uh, what's the physical device actually made of a mixture of metal and plastic as far as i know okay pretty sure around the back um where the um touch sensor is pretty sure that's plastic yeah okay. um i mean i I, I'll go into the camera a little bit in a sec. Um, the the screen is, it appears to be curved around the edges. So that means when you put the screen protectors on, then uh, then essentially you get a rim around it because uh, it's curved at the edges. Um, the camera lens, Dave. This is interesting. Yeah. So so Apple will use high quality exotic components. Oh yeah, you know. Um, glasses to to go and produce um the lens yeah and, and really they're just stop. buying a sony lens but yes okay so um so they're doing that and and google it would seem are buying uh fairly cheap plastic ones yeah mm. and uh I, I don't know that it's plastic but it's it's low quality and there have been a load of um complaints uh about uh, artifacts appearing when you uh, take a photo in the sunlight. Right. So you, um, occasionally you can, um, well, some artists will use like a ring effect from from looking at the sun, like from glare. Yeah. Yeah, like a lens flare. Yeah. So so that occurs, and interestingly, um, rather than Google uh, recalling the devices, you know, because these devices are full of um, I say sediment, but <laughs> impurities, shall yeah, we say? Okay. So, um, so it's not uniform across all of the devices. Then is that the issue? Some people have it worse than others. Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly that. Got you. And Google's solution to this is machine learning. <laughs> so they're going to roll out software, it would seem, to correct our images using machine learning. Wow! Awesome. Which is an interesting, very interesting take because 
you'd almost liken it to the um, the car industry, you know, where um, there's a, a downward pressure to ensure that um, the prices are low. And whilst we can have exotic suspension systems and all the rest of it, actually, if it's um, if it's got uh, you know computer, if it's computer controlled, that computer can actually go and correct a load of the imperfections. And so that means that we don't have to um, to have such um, you know, precise instruments when creating um, the components. Yeah. Yeah, that's that blows your mind, doesn't it? Because it corrects the photo um, by by adjusting it in a way that um, satisfies what an equivalent uh, non um what an equivalent clear photo would satisfy it doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that it would have been the same photo as if it was clear but it satisfies the um you know the actual yeah, yeah. Uh, the training you know as a result of the training it's the system works in a certain way and it's going to output an image that's um aesthetically in alignment with that but not necessarily mm. a true depiction of reality at the time mm. which is really quite interesting very very interesting it reminds mm. me of something i saw the other day where uh, it was using machine learning to magnify an image so whereas mm -hmm. normally it would pixelate this was filling in detail and that's mm. phenomenal the results absolutely phenomenal um mm. so making out lettering on sign when it was really really blurred um yeah. um a silhouette of a person that was perhaps made up of 16 pixels but looked yeah. very much like a person in the magnified version um yeah and that's just incredible. Yeah, it's yeah. adding data to the image. Yeah. So I was thinking that with these point clouds, yeah, <laughs> uh, like we can we can store petabytes of data from the you know these point clouds. But if you can uh, have a classifier that immediately classifies that as a certain type of building, yeah. Um, if you were creating, I say, a 3D world or anything like that, um, or even just, you know, you just want to have a representation of that building, if you don't really care about every single position of every brick, you could just quite literally tag that as this type of brick. How many bricks have we got in the UK? I've no doubt we've got a thousand or so different, maybe more types of brick. But how many will people actually notice, you know, a difference? Maybe... 10 or so yeah and what if it could classify it to a certain type of brick that surface and just when you go and uh, visualize it it will apply that texture to it yeah yeah so that's applying machine learning to procedural modeling basically to mm. to use so you would use the um, machine learning aspect to determine what the what the type of brick would be and what it would look like is that what you're saying yeah so from from training the model it knows that a house by me might well be made of red brick whereas a house by you might well be made of something that's a, a lighter gray or something sure sure and and similar with double glazed windows i mean if it if it identifies that i've got white windows they appear to be double glazed does it really matter whether it's got my exact double glazed windows you know, if, if you were playing grand theft auto 
do you really need to know that sort of detail or can it just quite literally say yeah, it's got a brick front to it it's got double glazed windows and it will just do it on the fly and you know or it would look it good use, enough could it use street view imagery to determine the um what's going to satisfy the uh, the output so yeah so, so i guess you could use street view um which is quite quite correct um i think what we're saying is that uh, that could just quite literally be an attribute so it could be just a reference on that geometry um that uh that the the, the surface is this yeah i see, um, I see. yeah so it's, it's a different issue isn't it really yes mm. so you're talking about attribution to then derive vi visual appearance procedurally rather than yeah. to get accuracy yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've I've seen this quite a bit actually um, recently, Dave. So so there's like um, some sort of discussion with 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 these point clouds. But you know, if you want to go and uh, create a three D version of a city, say um, one way would be to go and uh, take photos of of the entire city, and and or maybe generate a point cloud of the entire city, and, and another way maybe just to um classify buildings as say a a you know a 1900 terraced house um with these these colorings for instance and and i guess that's similar to video games isn't it where you would just um you would just have an attribute to say it's this type of a building and it would just apply it so even though it's not true reality it's not far off, if you know what I mean. <clears throat> yeah. So, the, so this, this kind of stuff does exist already. So the procedural yeah. procedural modeling exists. The problem that you have is that um, it ends up being at a larger scale, essentially uniform. So the mm. the um, the differentiation across fairly large distances, for example, approaches zero, which means that everywhere starts looking the same as everywhere else. So I think where machine learning could help here is to differentiate different individual parts. Um, so because because within a certain village in the Cotswolds, you want every building to look the same. That's kind of the whole point of having the mm. the um, the town planning process. You know, the, mm -hmm. the council planning, um, in that we want the street scene to be in keeping with the the surroundings. So that's fine. You have some individual variation between houses you know no, that's that's normal um mm. but you don't want your row of terraced houses in southampton to also just be made up of generic cotswold stone mm. it doesn't make any sense um and maybe that just comes down to attribution of the land or maybe you use the aerial imagery to say uh as the input for your training that then dictates how the attribution is actually um provided Mm. So I was thinking of those Tango phones, Dave. Um, they're able to sort of pick out surfaces, etc. Mm. Yeah? Mm. Um, and so maybe they can classify it um, in real time on the phone and then just send attributes back to a shared data store. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that would be really, really cool. So yeah, saying, okay, here's some, here's some red brick, here's uh, concrete mm. slabs, here's marble flooring. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that would be really cool to start to start building a worldwide data set of that nature would be would be very, very nice.
Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Right, Dave, is there anything else that you wanted to, to mention tonight? Uh, there's loads. There's loads. <laughs> I think we'll save it for for the next episode. Sweet. Um, yeah, we're getting on for an hour and a half now. It's, uh, cool. it's good good to good to have another uh, get together after a bit of a hiatus. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But um yeah, hopefully it won't be too long till the next one. But yeah, uh hopefully so. Yeah, let's wrap this up then, Dave. Yeah. Okay, yeah. If if people want to find you on Twitter, how would they do it, Ollie? <laughs> well at Snodnipper. At Snodnipper, okay. And yeah, yeah. at David R. Haynes. Yeah, thanks Perfect. everyone. This, is, this has been Tech Renegades.